Welcome back to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems, where we discuss how to apply SGI Nichiren Buddhism to our daily lives. I'm Jihi Jolly, and today we're talking about a very big problem that I'm going to let a few teenagers set up for us in their own words. So um, one time I was on the, B6, the B43 to go to my MMA class, and I saw um, you know, two people or one guy running up on another guy, and then there was a fight that was occurring and just knowing that um you know that happens all the time and you know the person that was getting uh being up he was very innocent in that moment and it was, i think it was a racially motivated attack i just really felt bad because i knew that you know i could have stepped in but i couldn't at the same time just because of you know my age and um and i didn't feel comfortable stepping in with maybe the consequences that can go with it but just seeing that somebody can be just be so mad and then be able to take out their anger on somebody that's just innocent um, kind of broke me that day. If people didn't respect everyone, then we'd be in chaos. And we're pretty much in chaos right now. Like, sometimes I get so worried about the world that I have a panic attack. Like, on the news sometimes, sometimes you'll see stuff about climate change and some commercials talk about plastic and how it's killing animals. And there's one thing that I saw was like, and a few, like, I don't know what year, but somehow in, somewhere in the future, like, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than, like, fish and, or marine life. And that scares me because, you know, that's something that we use, like, the environment is what we use and we live in it. So the fact that we're, like, destroying it and it's gonna be destroyed somehow in the future if we keep this up, it kind of it scares me sometimes because, like, I want a future and sometimes I feel like it might not happen. Tomas, Jillian, Emmy, Savannah, and Lisa are all currently in middle school or high school in and around New York. Their parents practice Buddhism, and most of them are beginning their own exploration of it, too. We sat down on our recent Saturday to talk about what's going on in the world, how it makes them feel, and what they think we can do about it. I was honestly surprised to hear them bring up all these issues. Climate change, racism, violence, bullying, mental health, anxiety, poverty, and the list goes on. And they were stressed, more stressed than I remember being at their age, which was just about 15 years ago. For this generation of teens and preteens, there seems to be some kind of shared awareness that the times they live in are extraordinary, chaotic, stressful, and possibly getting worse. Let's consider the data. In August 2018, the American Psychological Association conducted its annual Stress in America survey. They found that for Gen Z, America's youngest adults between the ages of 15 and 21, issues like sexual harassment and gun violence are significant stressors, and they're the most likely of all generations to report poor mental health and seek help for it. 75% of Gen Z surveyed say that mass shootings are a significant source of stress. Moreover, 91% of participants between 18 and 21 say they have experienced at least one physical or emotional symptom due to stress in the past month, compared to 74% of adults overall. Uh, in terms of the world, it's not only just the environment uh, situation that makes me sad, but also you know, people going through mental health issues. Like, so many people at, uh, at this day and age can uh, be stressed, suffer from anxiety, they may have suicidal thoughts, etc. 
That's Aaron, who's 14. I'm not sure if it's a media-fueled awareness that's making it seem like these issues are getting so much worse, or they're really worse than they've ever been. In most cases, it's probably a combination of both. But the point is, sometimes, the world just feels too messed up to deal with, let alone change. It can feel painful to navigate even when you're at your healthiest, which many of us are not. Which brings us to today's problem. What do you do when you feel like the world is just too messed up to change? How do you know what to stand up for? Where do you find hope or courage when you're consumed with fear or anxiety? The Lotus Sutra, on which SGI Nichiren Buddhism is based, holds an interesting answer to this question. First, it explains that the root cause of the negativity, self-interest, and violence we see in the world today can be found in the human heart. War and poverty, for example, stem from the greed and anger within individuals. The good news is that based on this very same principle, when we tap into our inner courage, compassion, and wisdom, we can dramatically transform the world around us. Think about it this way. We all probably know at least one person in our life who can light up a room when they enter it. In short, the Lotus Sutra teaches anybody how to become that person. So on this episode, we're going to hear stories of people who have done exactly that by tapping into their unlimited inner enlightenment. The other piece of good news is that we don't need to be famous or powerful to change the world. We can do it as ordinary people living true to ourselves. For context, the phrase that Buddhists chant, Myoho Rengekyo, is actually the title of the Lotus Sutra. And the Lotus Sutra is important because it's a collection of 2,500-year-old teachings by the historical Buddha that has spread across the world because of ordinary people who became enlightened to its single most important lesson, that everybody can equally attain enlightenment just as they are, where they are, and especially in the muddy realities of the real world. In the last four lines of the 16th chapter of the sutra, which we recite daily, the Buddha says, At all times I think to myself, how can I cause living beings to gain entry into the unsurpassed way and quickly acquire the body of a Buddha? In other words, how can I help the people around me manifest their own enlightenment, break free of suffering, and live a life of great self-respect and respect for others? In short, by beginning with myself. In the words of Buddhist teacher Daisaku Ikeda, some people say that the prevailing mood in the world today is one of powerlessness. Decisions about political, economic, and environmental issues all seem to be made somewhere beyond our reach. What can the individual accomplish in the face of the huge institutions that run our world? This feeling of powerlessness fuels a vicious cycle that only worsens the situation and people's sense of futility. At the opposite extreme of this sense of powerlessness lies the Lotus Sutra's philosophy that the inner determination of one individual can transform everything. It's a teaching that gives ultimate expression to the infinite potential and dignity inherent in the life of each human being. 
Lofty as this sounds, it's a really simple message I was recently reminded of when seeing the new movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, about the life philosophy of Mr. Rogers, the famous children's television producer that so many of us grew up watching. In it, I learned that Fred Rogers' life purpose was to teach children to respect their own worth and to learn to navigate the difficult emotions that life inevitably requires us to experience. Rogers would end each program by telling his viewers, You've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, he taped a public service announcement for parents about how to discuss tragic world news events with their children. In his own words, When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. It made me wonder, how do people turn into helpers? Before we get into today's story of one such person, let's consider what an individual's inner determination can actually do. In an essay entitled A Sense of Purpose, Ikeda writes about the legacy of Rosa Parks. I often think of the life of Rosa Parks, he says, an ordinary African-American woman returning home after a hard day's work in the tailoring section of a department store by bus one evening in December 1955. Although the bus driver ordered her to give up her seat to a white passenger as the discriminatory laws of the time required, she refused. Her single word, no, the courage of this one ordinary woman changed history and her ordinary day took on eternal significance. What was striking to me about this example, which I've heard so many times, is that in our memory, we tend to regard heroes as someone different from us, someone more capable, more brave, an activist, someone essentially in a different category than regular old me. But in reality, Ikeda explains that it was an act of courage by an ordinary woman on an ordinary day who was simply being true to herself that led to segregated busing becoming illegal in the United States. He continues, You cannot discover or realize your purpose in life with half-hearted efforts. To follow the dream in your heart and fulfill your mission requires true courage. Not the courage of battlefield heroes, but a courage much closer to home. Most of us, before being defeated by a problem, are first defeated by ourselves. A weak-spirited or cowardly person, before hesitating at the wall of an obstacle, will shrink before his own shadow, frightened by his own imagination, and will be ultimately undone by the coward in his own heart. Courageous people are first masters of their own heart. The practice of chanting and striving to live as the Lotus Sutra teaches, then, is the way to master our own hearts. This leads us to today's story, which is about somebody who came to hold considerable influence by following his own heart. Congressman Hank Johnson represents Georgia's 4th Congressional District, which includes Decatur, Georgia's Stone Mountain area, 
Conyers, Covington, and the eastern suburbs of Atlanta. He grew up in D.C. in the 60s, where his dad was a high-ranking official in the Bureau of Prisons, and his mom was a second-grade teacher in Arlington. My mother, in being a school teacher, sought to ensure that I knew how to read. And so she would sit me down after uh, dinner while she was washing the dishes and have me read the front page of the uh, Washington Post to her. After watching his older cousin become a lawyer, he was inspired to follow the same path. And when that same cousin won a seat on the Oklahoma State Legislature, 10-year-old Hank decided that he was gonna be a congressman. Having a soft heart and a soft demeanor, I got challenged a lot as a young man. I've also always had the heart for the person who was being bullied uh, to try to stop uh, the, uh, what was happening. So I've you know, kind of had an innate sense of justice about me. Always wanted to be a lawyer, always wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer like my uh, cousin. And criminal defense lawyers uh, protect a person against the power of the state. So it's always an unequal situation fighting for the underdog. Because I'm an underdog. I've always been an underdog. Always been a uh, kind of an introverted uh, person, musically inclined. Hank's experience of the world really started opening up when he was 13. He and his musician friends were regulars at a club called No Knees Up on 4th and Kennedy in D.C. Playing the drums, and playing the drums is like a support. It's like the ultimate support position in music. Everyone else being able to spread out and uh, do their thing, all of the other musicians, and you just sit there in the background and uh, maintain that beat uh, upon which everyone else can flow. We all have moments when we come into awareness about the world. For Hank, one of them was when President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. When President Kennedy was assassinated in 63, I felt the darkness of the moment. Because I remember when, when he uh, gave his inauguration speech and he talked about, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I remember seeing that on TV and I remember the weekend and uh, my mother taking us, bringing us down to the Capitol to view the uh, casket on the horse-driven caisson. And I remember waiting in line to walk through the Capitol to see. And the somberness of that weekend, yeah, the somberness of, of the nation, and you could just feel it. And then in 1968, when I was in uh, junior high school, it's in the eighth grade. I remember uh, getting the news that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. And that was on a Thursday night. And I knew, as soon as I heard the news, I knew that uh, it was a powder keg that would erupt. And uh, so to go to school in Washington, D.C. on that Friday, with the tenseness uh, that surrounded 
us. And I remember uh, a ice cream man happened to, a, a guy in an ice cream truck happened to have pulled up. And I remember uh, folks looting the ice cream truck and him having to slam the door shut and jump in the, in the uh, driver's seat and pull off. I mean, it was like a uh, atmosphere of vindictiveness. And then uh, two months later, uh, in the uh, presidential campaign uh, for uh, Bobby Kennedy to be assassinated, it was like a mind-blowing time. All the while, the civil rights movement and Vietnam protests are going on. And as Hank describes it, he was a young man living a hazy musician's life with his group of friends from the other side of town. So growing up in that haze, you know, of freedom, rebelliousness, anti-establishment, no particular ideology. I had the great fortune to have a mother who was grounded. My, my daddy was an alcoholic. She knew my dream was to become a lawyer and she prepared the way for me to do that. In college, Hank's worldview expanded as he took classes in African-American history and religion, which made him leave his Presbyterian roots behind and become an atheist. Until a week before graduation, when he got a phone call from a girl who needed a drum teacher. It turns out that she was a practicing Buddhist and a member of the SGI's Fife and Drum Corps, and needed someone to teach her to play the drums for an upcoming Buddhist culture festival. A few weeks later, Hank started chanting nam myoho Ringe kyo By then, Hank's parents had split up, and his mother and sister were living in their family home in D.C. In 1973, after a family tragedy in which his sister was murdered at home by her boyfriend due to domestic violence, Hank's mom packed up her life and moved back to Georgia where her sisters lived. Hank spent that summer with his mom before he would begin law school, and he chanted a lot. And I had been so focused and successful in my relationships with people, because I'm an introvert, and, but my relationships with people had changed. Instead of being the guy on the drums in the background, I had kind of become the lead guitar player or singer or something, <laughs> you know? But I, I noted that all of that happened uh, while I was chanting. That was the, the greatest summer that I had ever had. But then, two months later, when he moved to Texas for law school, he stopped chanting until he noticed something about himself. It kind of sunk, sunk in with me that my life condition had gone up while I was chanting, but now everything is back the way that it used to be. In the haze of everything, you know, in the melancholy haze. And uh, so at that moment I decided, okay, I'm gonna start chanting again. And so I connected with the uh, members there in Houston. By the time Hank was 46, he had started his own family, become a successful lawyer, and run for Congress once and lost. Then, one day, he got an unexpected phone call from a lady asking if he might consider running for county commissioner and that he would have a good chance at winning. Wanting to stay true to himself, he thought about it, talked to his family, and ultimately decided to take on the challenge of running again. 
So he called the lady back. And so when I called that lady back to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run, would you be my campaign manager? She said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to be your neighbor's campaign manager. And her name was Johnson also. Uh, anyway, went ahead and decided to, to run. There seven of us running for this open seat on the Democratic primary side, and four of us were named Johnson. And so he printed a bunch of red signs with white lettering that just said Hank with vote in small letters underneath. And he won. A few years later, he ran for Congress again and won. And since 2007, he has been the U.S. representative for Georgia's 4th Congressional District. When I asked Hank how we can use Buddhism to overcome this feeling of helplessness or dread, he said that it's been Daisaku Ikeda, who he views as his mentor, that has been his guiding example of taking the action you think is right, no matter what your position in society. President Ikeda was a, um, a kid who was sickly and was not expected to live long. Didn't go to college, nothing particular about him, but yet he um, began this practice. And he reached a point where he could sit down with a uh, premier in Soviet Union and a premier in, the, uh, in China. Who could say how he got there? But he ended up there talking with the premier of China at a time when China was emerging as a nation and uh, at a time when that nation felt threatened by the Soviet Union. And then to leave there a couple of months later, go to the Soviet Union and chat with the premier of the Soviet Union and hear from them uh, what they're thinking and then have the uh, gumption to ask them, well, are you planning on attacking China? And when they say no, he said, well, do you mind if I relay that to the Chinese? And they say no. And then you go back to China a few months later and tell the Chinese leadership that these guys over there are not going to attack you, so y'all can chill out a little bit. You know, here's a, here's a guy from a Buddhist organization in Japan, and he's out here meeting with world leaders. Anything is possible. I mean, here, here I am today. We passed out of the House of Representatives what is known as the FAIR Act, Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal Act. When I first got to Congress in 2007, I introduced this legislation, which restores the right to a, a jury trial in court. I'm a lawyer. It's what I do. I go to court, so I want to protect people's ability to take their civil action to court. I don't want them to be barred from doing so because of a forced arbitration clause embedded in a contract that they signed for cell phone service or for a nursing home for their mother. I mean, these clauses are ubiquitous at this point. They cut off your right to sue somebody in a court of law. So in 2007, I made a determination to file some legislation to get at this issue, which has only grown larger and more ubiquitous since. And today, we passed that 
legislation out of the House of Representatives. Back then in 2007, it seemed such a, a far away possibility. And this from a uh, legislator from Georgia who is, uh, you know I mean, just a regular member of Congress. It's not law yet, we still have a long way to go. Gotta pass the Senate and get it signed by the President. But we're advancing the ball. I find that uh, life is never still. It's always moving forward. If there's no reason to dwell on the past and to look at the past and let that define the future for you. So this spirit of hope and optimism and determination is something that comes from the depths of one's life. That is um, a feature of the Buddhahood that lies within. And so if all of us are Buddhas, then that means all of us can advance the, uh, the ball. Everybody, and no matter what uh, lane you're in, no matter what your mission is, you can make a difference positively. While this is sage advice for those of us who have chosen our cause and are fighting in our daily life, I can't help but wonder, what if you aren't fighting for anything except to survive in your life? What if you don't know how to bridge the gap between caring for yourself and caring for others? In other words, how do we change our deep-seated views of each other? Well, yeah, I feel like, um, like when it, like when we have like assemblies or whatever at school, they're like be an upstander, but it's not always that easy, you know? Because like sometimes it's just like little things, like looks almost. It give you this feeling of like. I don't feel comfortable and you can't go up to someone and say oh you gave me a weird look I don't like you anymore like you can't say that but I feel like kind of just um like treating everybody with like respect you know even if they don't treat you with respect because like I mean the world kind of is like sometimes a reflection of what is going on inside of you. Here is one perspective on this from science. In his new book The War for Kindness Building Empathy in a Fractured World, Jamil Zaki, a professor of psychology at Stanford University and the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab, makes this argument. Empathy is a choice that we make, even if we're not aware we're making it. We often make an implicit or explicit decision as to whether we want to engage with someone's emotions or not, based on the motives we might have for doing so. This is based on experiments from his own lab, which show that empathy is not a fixed trait, something that we're born with or without, but a skill that can be strengthened through effort. Given the context that isolation and tribalism are more rampant than ever, and we struggle to understand people who are not like us, but find it pretty easy to hate them, Zaki interviews people who are struggling to manifest empathy in the toughest situations. For example, a former neo-Nazi who's now helping extract people from hate groups, ex-prisoners discussing novels with the judge who sentenced them, and neonatal intensive care unit nurses fine-tuning their empathy so they don't succumb to burnout. From all of them, he learns that if you want to practice empathy, you can. He writes, My hope for our ongoing work and this line of thinking is that it can teach people about empathy but also teach people how to work with their own empathy. 
This is one of those cases where education and intervention overlap. If you believe that you can harness empathy and make choices about when to experience it, it adds a layer of responsibility to how you engage with other people. Combined with the Buddhist view of all life as interconnected, this is a very powerful idea. For example, in a lecture delivered at Teachers College, Columbia University in 1996, entitled Thoughts on Education for Global Citizenship, Ikeda lays out three requirements for global citizenship, which are 1. The wisdom to perceive the interconnectedness of all life and living. 2. The courage not to fear or deny difference, but to respect and strive to understand people of different cultures and to grow from encounters with them. And 3. The compassion to maintain an imaginative empathy that reaches beyond one's immediate surroundings and extends to those suffering in distant places. He goes on, The all-encompassing interrelatedness that forms the core of the Buddhist worldview can provide a basis, I feel, for the concrete realization of these qualities of wisdom, courage, and compassion. The following parable from the Buddhist canon provides a beautiful visual metaphor for the interdependence and interpenetration of all phenomena. Suspended above the palace of Indra, the Buddhist god who symbolizes the natural forces that protect and nurture an enormous net. A brilliant jewel is attached to each of the knots of the net. Each jewel contains and reflects the image of all the other jewels in the net, which sparkles in the magnificence of its totality. When we learn to recognize what Thoreau referred to as the infinite extent of our relations, we can trace the strands of mutually supportive life and discover there the glittering jewels of our global neighbors. Buddhism seeks to cultivate wisdom grounded in this kind of empathetic resonance with all forms of life. Nichiren Daishonin, the Buddhist monk who created the practice of chanting in the 13th century, echoes this very idea. He states, Because anger increases in intensity, strife of arms occurs. Because greed increases in intensity, famine arises. Because foolishness increases in intensity, pestilence breaks out. And because these three calamities occur, earthly desires grow more powerful and false views increasingly flourish. Buddhism teaches that the root cause of the calamities we see in the world are attitudes deep in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. For example, the same anger or arrogance we may experience on a day-to-day -day basis when confronted by our own insecurities, like how we feel towards a relative with different political views, or a slow mover on the subway, or a colleague we're feeling competitive with. This is the same anger and arrogance that fuels corruption or exploitation at scale. In Nietzsche's words, the solution is to quickly reform the tenets that you hold in your heart. This means to challenge our deep-seated disbelief in our own life and work hard to positively influence the place we are in right now by being our best and most honest self, just as ordinary people like Rosa Parks, Fred Rogers, or Hank Johnson have done. In other words, if we think this world is just too messed up to change each day, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if we continue to stay true to ourselves and challenge this belief, 
we can actually have a great impact on whatever we choose. But if you like just support people and like help people, it'll make you feel better, honestly. <laughs> like speaking from experience. And also, and once you feel better, you're gonna feel like you can do more. Perhaps the point is best summarized in Ikeda's 2017 peace proposal to the United Nations, which says this, the ability to solve problems is not something reserved for special people. It is a path that opens before any of us when we face reality head on, taking up some aspect of its weighty burden and acting with persistence. Our capacity to overcome difficulties is unleashed as we turn anguish and concern into determination and action. Young people, in particular, are blessed with a fresh sensitivity and a passionate seeking for ideals. Their energy can catalyze chain reactions of positive change as they forge bonds of trust among people. All that you have to do is just um, don't give up. Just don't give up. If there's a certain goal you have, then you need to do everything in your power to achieve this goal. There will be many problems in this world like there are right now, but the the real problem would be if you give up because if once you give up, everything is lost, you know? And nobody should be alone, should be facing these problems in the world alone because there are enough people in and many communities that can help you and so many people that you can help. So just don't give up. That's the one thing you need to make sure not to do. We covered a lot today, so I'll leave you with these two final thoughts from one of my all-time favorite books by Ikeda called One by One, The World is Yours to Change. First, what distinguishes first-class individuals from others? In my view, it is essentially the fact that they focus their gaze on posterity and base their thoughts and action on the welfare of future generations. Those who do so have vision. They are not swayed by short-term phenomena of the present. And second, if we look across the vast landscape of history, the life of one person may seem small and insignificant. Yet while human beings may appear to be swept up in the torrent of events, it is also clearly human beings who create history. Next time, we'll be talking about what Buddhism says about parenting, how Buddhism relates to creativity and art, and what it's like to be Buddhist in corporate America. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at podcast at sgi-usa.org.